If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, a Bible or device or this kind of thing. I tell you what I tell our folks at church. You guys think you can fake me out while you're playing Angry Birds, but you you always end up telling them yourself because you say amen at the wrong time. So <laughs> you think you're fooling folks. I got you. But Psalm, Psalm 78. Holy Father, we pray in the name of your Son that you'll speak to our hearts. We pray that you'll take us to where we need to be. We belong to you, Lord Jesus. We need your help. Lord, uh, as Chris said, we're, we're all broken people. Uh, it's really stupid to talk about this function. It's just degrees of it. We all have it. But we thank you that we have a perfect Savior, a perfect gospel, and a perfect Holy Spirit, and there's no failure in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll take us to where we need to be, no matter what we've gone through this past week or the stuff that we will face this afternoon or tomorrow. I pray that you'll suspend all of that and make us able to stay in the present at this moment to hear what God has to say. So, Spirit of the living God, we pray that you'll speak in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled my message today, For a Time We Cannot See. Uh, Karen and I have been talking about marriage beginning Friday night and, and, uh, and yesterday. But don't tune out on me because some of you, as soon as I say that, if you're single here uh, or if I say something about family and this kind of thing, uh, we, we, we get these little, little barriers that we erect. And, well, what about me? Well, you're part of somebody's family and part of what God wants to do in human, in human history. Um, although I'm not going to talk specifically about marriage right now, I am going to talk about family, and I am going to talk about the stewardship of family through human history. I really hinted at that on Friday night when we talked about the five purposes of family. And marriage and family, obviously, are inextricably tied together. You can't talk about one without another. Marriage presupposes family. It presupposes family. Uh, you can't a la carte it. You can't one-off it. You just say, no, we're just married. We don't have a family. No, it presupposes that. Marriage and family are linked together. It presupposes stewardship. It presupposes something that I have received and something that I'm passing off. Marriage is not a terminal institution, meaning that it's just about my moment in history. When I live and when I die, we got married, we stayed married this long, he got cancer, I got a heart attack, it's all over. No, marriage is not a terminal institution. Marriage is, 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 is terminal in this regard, that, that I only live a certain period of time and my wife and I live together during that time, but there is something eternal that's taking place that's passing from one generation to the next. And part of the problem that we have in our churches is that we've lost that lofty vision. We have lost our power because we're too obsessed with where we are. We're too obsessed with relevance. We're too obsessed with right now. And the irony of all of that is that when you're too obsessed in impacting your moment, you lose the power for that moment and that which endures throughout generations. So there is a vision that we have to hold on to. 
I promise you I'm going someplace with this. There, 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 there is something that, that we've got to feel connected with. I just, my latest book, I talked about faith. And this is an illustration of this, that, 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 that faith, faith is not about our moment in history. Faith is not terminal. Faith holds on to what's been given and believes God for what will happen even long after I'm dead. Now, push the rewind button here a little bit. Uh, one of the most impactful events in my life along these lines, uh, interestingly enough, happened a number of years ago when I saw the tape-delayed uh, um, uh, broadcast of Sammy Davis Jr.'s funeral. I was traveling. I was in uh, Dallas. I was speaking at an event there. And, uh, you know, I got checked in a hotel room. And I flipped on the TV, CNN. And as I was unpacking, um, they had all these tributes to the late, great entertainer Sammy Davis Jr. Well, then Gregory Hines stood up to give his tribute. And I had not realized this as much as I appreciated Gregory Hines and his enormous ability as an entertainer. He told the story that uh, he stood on the shoulders of Sammy Davis Jr., that Sammy Davis Jr. was his mentor. He told the story of how uh, uh, when he was a little boy, he and his brother would sneak into the Apollo Theater there in, in Harlem and, 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 and just to watch Sammy Davis Jr. and his uncles perform. Told how each step along the way, uh, Sammy Davis was, uh, uh, was, was notorious for his generosity and how he helped him out in his career, even gave him money and got him gigs and helped him in the early stages to get started. And then he gave this moving tribute and story. He said uh, a couple of weeks before the entertainer died, you know, he died of throat cancer, and uh, he went to see him. And as he walked into the house, uh, here you have Sammy Davis Jr. He's sitting on this couch, and he's, his body was totally emaciated, and I don't know what that meant, but he was always a slight man. But he said he, 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 at this point he couldn't talk. And so Hines said, I sat next to him and paid him a tribute. I uh, told him how much he meant to me and um, what, what a great thing he's been in my life and great source. And he went on to say a few other things. And he said, the time came to, uh, to go and I leaned over and I kissed him on the cheek just to say goodbye. He said, I realized that this would be the last time that I'd probably see him alive. And then Hines says, as he's walking toward the door, he he's, hears a shuffling behind him. And he turns around. And there it is. There he is, Sammy Davis Jr., barely able to stand. Pretended as if he had a basketball in his hand and he did like this. What's in your hands? What, what, what's, what's in your hands? What are we placing in the hands of those that we influence? What's enduring? What matters most? These stories and family trips and memories and Disney World and, you know, vacations and all the stuff that we did at Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, birthday parties. That's good, but does that really matter? 
What's, what's in your hands? What signature are we writing over the souls of the next generation? The people that we influence, those that we disciple. It's just a rearrangement of the how-tos in the Christian life. But what do we... Psalm 78 is a psalm, one of the few psalms that... Uh, it's a psalm of Asaph. David didn't write this psalm. Uh, the sons of Korah wrote a number of songs. Asaph wrote a number of songs. We believe that Moses wrote two or three of the psalms. Obviously, the lines share the psalms were written by David, but this is one of the psalms that David didn't write. It's the psalm of Asaph. And in this psalm, Psalm 78, if you read it, Asaph is summarizing the wonderful, incredible, unfailing track record of a sovereign hand of God in shaping the nation of Israel. As you know in your Bibles that Israel in the Old Testament is likened to a family, to a family. So I'm going to take the applicational implication from that likening and apply it to our families. But right here at the very beginning, up near the top of the psalm, verses 7 through uh, 5 through 7, Asaph outlines what this is all about. He reaches back and he talks about if we're going to affect a time that we cannot see, if we're going to make a difference about a future that we will not experience, if my footprints in the sands of time will be noticeable 150, 200, 300, 500 years from now, what do I have to do? And in this, these, what, three verses, Asaph Gives us a, it gives us a procession, a progression of what we need to do. He speaks of a passion, then he speaks of a process, and then he underscores a finished product. A passion, a process, and a product. What makes you pound the table and weep? What's the engine in your heart? What matters most in your relationship with your husband or wife? What matters most and what's the real exclamation marks in your relationship with your children? What will matter with your great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren? What will be permanent? And Asaph speaks of what's in our hands and he says this in in two parts here, beginning at verse 5. He says, speaking of God, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. If you read that, you can get a little lazy about that. You'll miss the very significance of what he's saying. He established a testimony and appointed a law. He established a testimony and appointed a law. What is he doing to the nation of Israel when he makes that statement? He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Don't get a case of spiritual amnesia on me. Don't be so obsessed and absorbed in your moment and the current crises that you have that you forgot what God did. And so he speaks of this, if I might use the analogy, this ball or this thing that's been placed in our hands as the character of God and the content of Scripture. That's what we have. That's what we have. Don't get cute. Don't wander away from it. 
what gives power to your life, what gives a sense of meaning to your moment in history, what will change the course of the destiny in your family, what will answer all of the, all of the problems that you face, what will give hope in your life, what will give healing to your brokenness, what will give meaning to your life is not the latest blog or the latest magazine article or the latest conference that you go to or the latest little cute thing that some entertainer or public speaker says or the latest inspirational fodder. What will give meaning to your life and what will give impact to your moment in history is that you build your life around the character of God and the content of Scripture. He says, for he established a testimony. The word testimony has to do with the ways in which God has worked. That you get close to those ways. You've seen him answer prayer. Your life is nothing more than the biography of God during your moment in history. That's what your life is. And that's the reason why there needs to be surrender in the Christian life. The reason why we surrender to the Lordship of Christ is because God doesn't do double billing. He does not share His glory. He's not going to wrestle with you. He's not going to fight with you. You If you keep fighting with Him, He'll take His hand off of you. And He says, well, how's that working? What He wants is surrender in our lives so that so that our lives become a testament and a vehicle to the history of God's supernatural intervention during our moment down here. It's not about you helping God do anything. It's about God doing everything. He writes those stories in your life. And so he says he established He established his character. You know how he's worked. You look in the rearview mirror of your life. Don't get crazy on me, man. You you know what God has done for you. All of us in here, you know what God has done for you. You know what he did for your kids. You know how he saved you. You know how he delivered you. You know how when you were between a rock and a hard place and you're crying out, Uncle, how he came through for you. Don't hide that. Don't run from that. That's the theme of your life. It's the character of God. And he says, for he established a testimony, and he says he appointed a law. I love the sound, the poetic sound of that, the, the phrasing of that. The idea, it hints towards objectivity. He appointed a law. A law. The very expression, appointing the law, assumes that we live under the authority of God's word. That his ways and his word is everything. Blessed is the man who does not walk, sit, or stand, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. In fact, the word meditate, there's an interesting Hebrew word. It literally means dull sound. It implies, it implies such a thorough knowledge of truth that it becomes a part of my idea. Identity. The Bible is not just a bunch of words in my head. I don't memorize it because I want to know truth uh, paradigms and interconnected thoughts and have good theology. But this book has become my life. It's become my life. 
And Asaph says to the nation, you know, you really do know that you can't separate your history from God's history. You know that. So why do you keep trying? Why do you keep trying? Why do you keep fighting it? Submit to it. And so as he moves through this passage, he says, now look, you know, let's not even talk about shaping future generations or impact their kids that you raised that, you know, act right and your husband that you don't want him to act so much like an idiot and your wife you want her to do better. Let's not even talk about that first. What we need to talk about is what you value. That's where it begins. You don't get to outcomes before you get to that which produces the outcome. And that's our problem. We quickly want to run the outcomes. It's not, you're not going to get to outcomes. No, no. What you, do, what you need to do is go back, go back, go back home. Go back home. What do you value? What's your passion? Do you want to raise kids that do you proud or you want to raise kids who are godly? Do you want to have a happy marriage or do you want to have a godly home? Well, what's your passion? What's your passion? You're going to make that decision. So it's as if they said, God, it's not blowing smoke. There's a reason why he established his testimony. There's a reason why he appointed a law. There's a reason why he said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, Hey, 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 if you disobey me, you're going to have hell to pay. I said it. So what do we do with that? Again, if you want to... If you want to leave footprints in the sands of time, you got to wear work boots, okay? I mean, it's, it's the same for the faint heart. You can't play with this thing. You can't play with it. If, you, if you're going to affect your moment in history, then there's, there's some decisions you're going to have to make. And so the Bible and God are not just stuff that I run to. It's my life. Then he says, Asaph says that there's a process, though. He established a testimony and appointed a law. So what, what, what do I do with that? It's right here in the text. He says in the second part of verse 5, is that he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, then there's a purpose clause. So he says, now, now here's the deal. The reason why God established a testimony and appointed a law is not for us to have a holy huddle. Um, there is a commissioning involved in this. And by the way, I wish I had a little more. I don't, I don't want to get sidetracked here. But really, Christians view life differently than unbelievers view life. A distinctively Christian worldview about life means that life, inherent in the word life itself, is mission. 
To live means to be on mission. Life is about the glory of God and about the purposes of God. So for a believer, we don't get duplicitous about life. Life means that I live out the plan and the purposes of God. That's what life means. That's what life means. When Jesus made the statement, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly and overflowing, he was not talking about some Christian narcissism where everything's all about me and it's about me getting bigger square footage and all the stuff and the trinkets and toys. No, 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 no. That's not what he's talking about when he's talking about that abundant life. He's talking about modeling a life to a watching world, living the way it was meant to be lived, fulfilling his mission and living under the canopy of the honor and the glory of God. So that I reflect his character and I reflect what he, what he said during my time in history. So life itself means mission. So thus he says that he may teach their children. And you would miss this in the English translation. The word teach there is an interesting Hebrew word that's translated teach. It's not the word that, uh, for teach that would be, uh, the dissemination of information. The pedantic term, you know, just, uh, you know, two plus two is four, uh, stuff apart from experience. It is a passionate word uh, uh, for teach. It could have been translated that they might, by all means possible, everything that's in them, pour into this generation and the generations to come the character of God and the content of Scripture. That we discipline our children within the context and over against the backdrop of the character of God and the content of Scripture. We raise them to think in terms of their lives and their future about what does the character of God imply I should do? What does the content of Scripture direct me to do? And we pour it into them. We make decisions as couples within the rubric and context of the character of God and the content of Scripture. We make those choices. We don't a la carte it. We don't put it in the parentheses. We don't put it down here at the bottom of the page to PS this thing. No, everything about who God is and what He says is the context and, con- and, 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 and the way in which I live my life and make those choices. Then, then he adds to this as he describes this. And actually, this is brilliant in the text because really the, the, the process describes the passion that's implied by the Hebrew word translated teach. He, he, he really is describing what, what it really means to be passionate in your teaching. He says that the next generation might don't know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. In other words, you are making choices and decisions, Crawford, right now. In light of what you want those who are Loritz's 400 years from now to look like. Now, I don't have the privilege to be selfish. So what am I doing? What am I doing? See if I can give you an illustration, a story or so to help unpack this. My great-grandfather, I write it, I've written about this in a number of the books that I've written, but 
my great-grandfather was a slave. His name is Peter. You say, great-grandfather? Don't you meet your great-great-grandfather? No, my dad, my dad was the youngest boy of 14 kids, and Pop was born on February 13, 1914. And so it was his granddad, Peter, who was, was a slave. As the story goes, my father remembered him, by the way, because Peter lived to be an old man. And uh, I remember as a little boy, I used to hear my dad and my aunts and uncles tell stories about him. Uh, Peter would uh, uh, sit and rock back and forth on the front porch of the old homestead there in Conover, North Carolina. And uh, he, 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 uh, he was illiterate, couldn't read a lick. But check this out. They said that he had memorized huge portions of Scripture. He said, how did you do that? Well, the story is that he would make his children and grandchildren read them familiar passages of Scripture over and over and over and over and over again. And my dad says that his memory of, of the old man was that he would just sit on a porch, rock back and forth, and sing and pray. Love the Lord Jesus. And that man, although he, we have no record of I remember leaving Catawba County, North Carolina, or what? But that man left a mark on succeeding generations. Just that simple heart for Jesus. Passion for his family. A love for the word. Wrote a signature. There's a little church across the street from the home well, the old homestead there, the property is not, not any property in the Ritz family, but back in the day, there was like 350 acres of my grandfather owned there in Conover, and he had given property uh, for the little church, Thomas Chapel Amy Zion Church on 2nd Street, the build on that, the cemetery back there. Fast forward a couple of years ago, Brian, our oldest son, and I were speaking at the Billy Graham Center in, uh, in Asheville, which was about less than an hour's drive away from Conover. And we had some time. I said, Brian, you like to go back to the old homestead? We hadn't been back there years and years. He hadn't been there since he was a little boy. I hadn't been back there in a long time. So we made our way back there, and, and uh, you know, everything's just sort of a little upheaval and stuff. Yeah, you go back to place you haven't been in a long time. So, But I remembered I got back to 2nd Street and got to Thomas Chapel, and uh, about a third of the graves in that graveyard back there are Loritzes. And so Brian and I walk through the graveyard there, and uh, he uh, pointed out his great-grandparents, Milton, Anna's grave. Peter's buried back there, but we can't find, uh, we can't find his grave. But something hit me that, uh, that shocked me. I wasn't prepared for this. As I looked at my Uncle Emery's grave and my grandparents and uncles and relatives and all of this, I began to weep. And I just turned to my son and I said, these folks paid your tuition. They paid your tuition. They had a simple faith. And one of the things that helps me not to get full of myself, the boards that I serve on, and people be signing their Bibles and you know, radio programs and all of this nonsense, is the realization this may not be about me at all. It may be 
the prayers of a former slave sitting on the front porch in Catawba County, North Carolina. And for whatever reason, God said, in this generation, answer that prayer. Don't take yourself so seriously, but take God very seriously. Don't think he all that, but realize that he's everything. And you've got to live your life and raise your family with that sense of mission. Parent your children, relate to your husband and wife, and relate to the challenges in your life from your grave. It'll pry your perspective away from self-serving conclusions. You're going to be very dead one day. Very dead. That money and all that, and I don't care. You can go work it out. I'm going to, I got to, you know, work out. I go to the gym. It ain't about looks these days. It's about health. I mean... You can tuck it and pluck it and all that stuff. You're decaying, baby. You're going to be maggot food. All right? Your teeth are going to fall out. All that stuff. All right? The only thing is going to last forever. Now, don't, no, please do keep yourself up. It helps with the journey. But uh, it, it does. I mean, a little, little something. So there's this perspective, this passion, the character of God and content of Scripture. There's this process by all means possible. Why? Because it's not about your moment in history. It's not about you. 2016 is not the greatest era, all right? It's about what God wants to do until Jesus returns. And so we live that way. All right, what's the finished product? What's the payoff here? And I, I, I'm going to read the, the, the second one of verse seven, or verse 6 and going down through verse 7. But before I do that, I want to say something here. I, I'm going to articulate three things that Asaph outlines. If we take the character of God, content of Scripture, if we passionately pour it into our choices and decisions and live under that canopy, he says this is what will happen in succeeding generations. Now, a little bit of a parenthesis here. You cannot determine how your kids are going to turn out. God is the greatest father in the world, and Adam screwed up. All right? And I get a little bit, a little bit ticked off at some of my Christian colleagues and preachers who will go ahead and quote Proverbs, train a child away, should go and he's old, he will not depart from it. Okay, well, you know, I hate to bust the bubble here. Number one, that's not a promise, it's a proverb. Proverbs and promises are two different things. Proverbs are truisms that all things being considered, if you do this, this probably should happen. So it's a proverb, not a promise. Number two, if you look closely at the text, what it's talking about is that train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he should not depart from it. It, happens to, it has to do with, with, with his own personal bent in terms of personality, these kinds of things. Now, having said that, we can claim God for our children. We can cry out to him, and God does answer prayer, and he's not willing that any should perish. But remember that life is a moving picture, not a snapshot. And you could be the greatest parent in the world and your child make wrong choices. 
This humbles us. I mean, our children, by the grace of God, keep praying for them because as long as they're alive, they can make great choices and we're all just a quarter inch away from stupid. All of us in here. So I bless the Lord when people say things. I just say, keep praying for them, keep praying for them, keep praying for me. All right? So Karen and I know people who have done a much better job than we have of raising their kids, and their kids have made some hellaciously awful choices. But as long as there's breath, as long as there's a pulse there, there's hope for transformation, so you never give up praying. Now, having said these things, I think that there's, uh, there are three things, and I, I need to land a plane here. This is the finished product. The finished product. Verse 7 says, So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Here's the end game. What do you want 475 years from now, they trace this young adult's life back to you. What do you want it said about them that you initiated? Asaph says you want these three things said. One is, that they place their confidence in God. Number two, they have a sense of history. Number three, they have a will to obey. Number one, he says, so that they should set their hope in God. They can reach back and realize that My great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, my parents, my parents, they chose the character of God and the content of Scripture as their source. And that's where I come from. They endured. They succeeded. They thrived. They went through. Why? They say, poke around, and they read prayer journals. They see that they had decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. They had decided that this book of the law would not depart out of their mouths, but they would meditate therein day and night, that they would observe to do all that was written therein. God blessed them. God bless them. What are you putting your confidence in? What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your trust in? What are you teaching your kids to trust? Education? No, that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Money? Really? Seriously? So... You want them to have a sense of confidence. Number one, you want, secondly, you want to have them, have them, them to have a sense of history. 
Why is that important? Our families are fragile right now. Listen, I'm not beating up on anybody. Our families are fragile right now because, because, because of the shrapnel of divorce. They're fragile. Now, I'm not saying there's any reason, there, there aren't biblical reasons for that. I'm not trying to guilt anybody. I'm a pastor. We got our church is like your church. We've got a lot of folks in there. And sometimes, regrettably, there are reasons for it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But there's a price to be paid. There's a lot of instability. There's a lot of stuff. And because they're not footprints of consistency in history, there's this uncertainty and insecurity that is our legacy. That's the reason why adolescence is lasting longer now. That's the reason why young men, young men are afraid of commitment now. That's the reason why you got all of this stuff and you don't need to have a PhD in behavioral science to figure this thing out. People don't have stories anymore. They don't have stories of faithfulness in their backgrounds anymore. They don't have stories of endurance anymore. They don't have these stories to pull from. What they have now is, oh, it didn't work. Just find somebody else. This didn't happen. Well, get somebody else. You deserve happiness. No, you don't like this job. Just go change another job. Go change here. So we have this, this fragile, thin culture who has no history. No history. What caused me to love this woman and, 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 and to do whatever I could to provide for her? Because of a vision, I saw my dad get up every single day and show up. Not because I was so great, but I could pull from this. Sense of history. And what that does for the next generation, it causes them to throw their arms back, shoulders back, gives them a sense of courage. Tell a quick story. Again, my oldest son, when he was in undergraduate school, he um, went to a Christian college, and uh, I was up speaking in chapel at the school there, and we were hanging out together. And I'll never forget this. He, I found out, I don't, I don't forget all the details of this, but I found out that he had some financial need, and he didn't call me. And, uh, you know, I, so I, I said, Brian, how come, you, how come you didn't call me? This is what he said to me. Never forget this. I, 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 I remember exactly where we are. We're in this mall right close to, to, uh, to, to campus. He said, Dad, the reason I didn't call you is because I remember when we were little growing up and you were on staff, your mom on staff on campus to save for Christ. You know, we would sit around at the dinner table. We have prayer requests. And mom would bring this book out, this little book that she would write down a prayer request and claim it. And then write down the answer when God would come through. And I remember sitting around and we'd be praying about support needs and all these other things and how God would answer. He said, I started to call you, but then I remembered what God did. And I just said, it's my turn. Sense of history. Don't rob your children by doing for them what you can. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Sometimes the best thing to do is to stand back and let them trust God. And I'll land the plane on this one. 
So the last one is that uh, you give them confidence, a sense of history, and a will to obey. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. The work and plan of God is incarnational, not just didactic. One of the reasons why you have church, he puts us in community, is so that we live out the truth and you see the truth being lived out. You see love demonstrated. You see reconciliation demonstrated. People need to not only be told to obey, they need to have models of obedience that encourages their obedience. Obey God. So you look back over your life and you can see these folks in my background obeyed God. These folks in my background didn't obey God. Look at where they ended up. But look at what happened here. We established a testimony and appointed a law. Father, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for your word. Help us, we pray. Forgive us for being so so absorbed with the current crises that we're facing or the, the big problem that's in front of us that we forget that we're only passing through here and that we have to choose every day to trust the faithfulness of our loving Heavenly Father who's never let us down and to cling to the truth of His Word and His promises that have never failed. Do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name.